Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Orthopedic Surgery Podcast, a curated series of interviews and discussions highlighting the three shields of orthopedic surgery at Mayo Clinic, clinical practice, research, and education. Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Ortho Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kalechi Okoraha, and we have the pleasure of having one of our own Mayo Clinic residents, Dr. Malik Dancy, who is a rising star in the orthopedic world. Today, we have a special session here on diversity in orthopedics. We're going to highlight some keys to success in underrepresented minorities in ortho and answer many questions we have received through social media. So Dr. Dancy, thank you for being here with us today. Dr. Kuroha, thanks for having me. Uh, excited to talk about this song. Um, it's kind of as an introduction to myself. Um, I'm from Raleigh, North Carolina, born and raised in North Carolina. I attended UNC undergrad and UNC for medical school as well. And uh, in between medical school and undergrad, I had two gap years in which I worked as a CNA. After medical school, I obviously went on to residency at Mayo Clinic. A little bit about my background. My parents are Nigerian. Uh, they raised me in Houston, Texas. I grew up playing basketball and wanted to go to the NBA. Obviously, that didn't happen, um, but I made it in another fashion, uh, being a team doc for an NBA team. Me and uh, Malik kind of have opposite backgrounds. So Malik went to PWIs for undergrad and medical school. And if you've watched the podcast, you know a little bit about my background. I went to HBCU. So I started off at uh, Xavier, New Orleans and then did my medical school at Howard. I did my residency at Henry Ford in Detroit, uh, where I served as a chief resident there before doing my fellowship at Rush. So that's a little bit about my background. And so here, what we wanna do today is just highlight some keys to success for underrepresented minorities. We get questions uh, a lot about what does it take to get here? You know, how is it different being an underrepresented minority in orthopedics? And so we wanted to shed some light on that situation. So we'll start with some of the questions we got through social media. Um, the first question is, how do you navigate being an African-American in the medical field? Did you ever get discouraged in medical school being a minority? And how did you get through it? So I can take this one first. Um, you know, as you already pointed out, I went to a PWI. And so from coming from an institution where I was very much a demographic minority, uh, medical school presented a lot of the same challenges I was faced with earlier in my academic career. Uh, for instance, you know, patients and even staff sometimes assumed I was a CNA or a nurse or even janitorial staff or pretty much anything other than a medical student, despite having the white coat, the badge, the stethoscope, being dressed apart, et cetera. And, you know, that could either stem from preconceived notions or just not being used to seeing individuals like myself in this space. And so you know, also a lot of times as a minority, a lot of my classmates and the residents and attending physicians that I worked alongside during medical school came from very different backgrounds than my own. And for that reason, it sometimes felt like it was more difficult for me to relate to or form that instant connection that some other members of the team and some of my peers were able to do just by virtue of me being very culturally different. And you know, there's just a lot of conversations that I just found myself kind of being on the outskirts of like, music-wise or hobbies or TV shows, life experiences, whatever. And so initially, while that might seem like a trivial thing, uh, constantly you know, not being able to feel like you relate runs the risk of making you feel like an outsider or you know, contributes right. to imposter syndrome. Um, 
So, right. so, how, so how you get through those kind of things? So for me, um, first and foremost, I just try to prepare as much as possible. Um, I can't tell you about a lot about golf. I can't tell you a lot about boating, but I can tell you about this patient's disease. I can tell you all the anatomy of this surgery that we're doing right now. And so at the end of the day, no matter what, clinical excellence is gonna stand out. It's gonna get noticed. And the exam scores that you take, those are gonna be objective. So I always tried to make sure that was in order. And then also I was fortunate enough to have just a great support system at my medical school through SNMA chapter um, and the faculty associated with that. So even when I was feeling kind of alienated elsewhere, I always had like a home away from home of sorts uh, with the members of that organization and people that I could share experiences with and relate to otherwise. So I think between those two things, it really gave me a chance to be able to get through successfully. That's a great answer. And, and so you don't know a lot about boats and golf now, but you will, you will soon enough. That's what I hear. <laughs> I can tell you, I, di I didn't know a lot about it when I was young in residency, but I tell you, boat and go boats and golf are two things that I love right now. So <laughs> you got some time. I, um, I think on my, I, on my end, you know, I've always understood the racial differences in the medical field and what that entailed. I mean, for me, what that meant is I knew I always had to work harder than others. I had to make my CV more competitive just to be in the same conversation, you know, as others. And I think my path was, you know, as we said, a little bit different from yours, you know, because I went to HBCUs. For, for me, I was always surrounded by people who looked like me, who wanted to, you know, go into medicine, who wanted to be orthopedic surgeons. So I never really got discouraged. We would just come together collectively, like you said, and try to help each other uh, achieve our goals. Mm -hmm. So for the second question for you, Malik, it says, what can I do in medical school to give myself the best chance at matching into residency? So I know- A little bit about how to study step one, step two, grades, AOA, leadership, all that kind of stuff. If you can just touch on what you think is the best. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so ortho is now uh, one of the most competitive specialties to match into. Um, that being said, it's really important to cover all of your bases when you're trying to match into ortho these days. And I think there are really five big bases to cover. That's going to be board scores, that'll be clerkship grades, uh, research, strong letters of recommendation, and networking. You know, and each of those kind of presents a, a it can all going to become a very long conversation, but just in short for board scores, step one is now a thing of the past. Um, we've now moved on to having step two as the big test. And so now I think it's all the more important because in the past, step one, if you didn't perform as well as you wanted to want it, you had step one as an opportunity to make up for it. And now step two, even though it's later in your career and some say it's more clinically applicable, it's pretty much one shot to get it right. And so yeah. that's one more, and unfortunately these programs do have to have some objective measure by which they can analyze candidates. And so step two is gonna become that. Um, yeah, how, what, what, do you, what, do you, what do you feel about that? Like, how do you feel about that? Cause for me, it's like, step, all we heard is step one, step one, you gotta get a good score, step one. Now it doesn't even matter. Right, right. So I mean, it's kind of bittersweet because we put blood, sweat and tears into that test. Right, right. Um, but at the same time, I, I personally think it's a good change for a couple of reasons. You know, one is later in your academic career, 
And so I know a lot of people that, you know, they did their two years or their one and a half years or however the curriculum is set up for the academic portion. And they, you know, didn't go all in on step one because they didn't know if they needed to or not. And then they did their clerkship portion, they did their rotations and they found out, oh, well, I'm in love with this very competitive specialty. But now that door is almost kind of closed for them because of how they performed on step one. So at least yeah. with step two, they've made it all the way through their clerkship year. They know exactly what it is that they like. And now they have a realistic kind of benchmark of, I like ortho or I like X competitive specialty and I need to get this score in order to be competitive. And so now it makes it so they're able to work fruitfully towards a certain endpoint rather than here's this huge test that I need to take early in my medical career and it'll open and close some doors that may or may not matter for me. So I like to change right. that. Okay, okay. You said a little bit about rotation skills. Obviously you wanna have the best grades, leadership positions, all that's great. You touched a bit about AOA. And so tell us a little bit about AOA. Is this still top 5% of your class or? So that'll all be dependent on the medical school. Some medical schools like to do just the classroom portion or just the clerkship year portion or some consider everybody. Uh, my medical school considered only your clerkship year portion or your rotations. They didn't count classroom because we were pass fail for that system, but that's gonna be med school specific. Um, some med schools do not have AOA at all. So it's kind of like this thing that is, if it's available at your school, it, it reflects very well on you to have it. Um, but if it's not available, it's not a deal breaker. Or if you're not AOA, but you've covered all your bases otherwise, it's not a deal breaker. I think when I applied back in uh, 2020, at the time, I want to say there's something like 45 or 50% of people who matched according to the NMRP data that came out of ortho applicants were AOA. So half were, half weren't. And so if you make it into AOA, that's great. That'll help your application. If you don't, it's not the end of the world. Okay. And then the last thing you touched about is networking, which is so important. You always got to network, make connections, reach out to people to help you because people want to help you, but you have to reach out. So I think networking is one of the biggest things uh, you can do. Um, we have another question here. How should one balance the want to give back to the community versus being competitive when applying? So for me, I don't think it needs to be an either or. I think for me, it was important that I did both. So, you know, as a doctor or as an aspiring doctor at the time, um, in the African-American community that's big, we're very underrepresented in that field. And a lot of why that is, is because I feel like a lot of our youth don't get to see individuals such as ourselves in this space, so they're not aware that it's possible. And so for that reason, I felt like it was integral for me to be present at schools or volunteer or just engage in my community in general in order to make sure that people are aware of that possibility. Um, and it's a lot of my why I went into medical school in the first place. And so if I just went and I did the rotations and I got the grades, but I wasn't really tapping into the main reason why I went into medicine, which is try to uh, help disadvantaged communities such as the one that I'm a part of, um, that would not have been fulfilling for me. And so I found that it was necessary that I spent time doing both. So covering my classroom portion, and when I had free time, or I made time rather, to still plug back into my community and give back in that way. 
And rather than it being something that detracted away from the work that I was doing in the classroom or in the hospital, it was something that energized it. And so with that extra hour, instead of, you know, or two hours or however much time I spent on one of those weekdays talking to kids from school, it's not like I came back more tired and I'm like, oh, now I have to study and I could have got two points more on my test if I would have used that time. Instead, it reminded me of why I'm working so hard in the first place. So I don't think it needs to be an either or. I think it's important that we do both, you know, but that's a, that's a personal opinion of mine. And just know that it's possible for whoever asked that, it's possible to do both and to do both well. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. I think it's, you know, so important to give back because, you know, if it wasn't for the people that came before me and you, I know there's plenty of physicians that, you know, guided me in my path and, and laid the stepping stones for me to be here today. And so it's important that I do that for others and so that others can follow me and that keeps me in that, that train that, that keeps on going. Mm -hmm. So that's a great point. Um, another question here, I touched a little bit about the importance of networking, um, but this question is for you, Malik. What does networking mean to you, especially for Black candidates, and how do you find a place to network with surgeons or residents at target institutions? So networking was huge for me. Um, one, in the scope and the search for a uh, residency to try and match into, it was huge that I could see an individual from a background like myself thriving in that space. Um, orthopedics is not very diverse, is one of the least diverse fields in medicine. And so for that reason, I wanted to make sure that the program that I ended up with would be one accepting of me and that people like myself have gone there to thrive. And so networking was not only important for me to try and to match, but also to see how I would fare once I got to a place. And so there's a lot of opportunities to network through SNMA. Uh, I kind of brought up SNMA in an earlier question, the Student National Medical Association for those who aren't aware. And there's pretty much a chapter in almost every medical school dedicated to serving underrepresented medical students and staff, and then also serving underrepresented communities uh, through our efforts as medical personnel. So um, through that, I was able to go to a variety of different conferences, meet orthopedic surgery residents and orthopedic surgery attendings uh, from backgrounds such as myself and pick their brain, one on their institution and how to do better and make sure that I matched. Um, and that was ultimately, I think a big part of why I was able to find success just navigating through medical school. And so I would recommend that everybody network early and network often. You can use SNMA as a big vehicle but there are other vehicles as well. Um, another big one is the Gladden Society. Uh, that has events at the AAOS conference that happens. And I thought it was important that every time I attended AAOS, I plugged in with the Gladden Society events and um, attended those. And I had likewise the same opportunities to pick the brains of orthopedic surgery residents and attendance from backgrounds like myself and they were able to provide a lot of guidance. So I think networking is huge. I think it's very, very important. And I recommend people begin it pretty much as soon as they start medical school to one, meet more people, but also make sure they're in the know as much as they can before they go into the match. Right, right, so important. The, you know, you can't overstate the importance of networking. I, I tell people all the time, once you do that networking and establish those con uh, contacts, you gotta make sure you maintain those. And never be too afraid to, ask for you know some help with something to reach out say hey you know i'm applying for this can you support me you, you gotta you gotta open your mouth and ask for these things otherwise you never get it 
Absolutely. All right, one last question we have for you here is, do you see African-American females in authors? Great question. I don't see a lot. I don't see a lot. Historically, mm. orthopedics has been <clears throat> a boys club. Um, I wanna say at least a few years ago, it was 94% white males. There was even less black males. There was even less black females. And so that is definitely uh, uh, demographic that needs to be increased within orthopedics, you know, not only just to fit a number, but also for patient care, you know, people from all walks of life, all genders, all colors have orthopedic issues. And, you know, the data has shown that diversity within medicine helps with patient care outcomes. And so I think it's very important that we have black female orthopedic providers. Um, I have the pleasure of knowing uh, a bunch of different black orthopedic uh, female residents that matched into my class. And, you know, even though it looks like this is something that is on the uptrend, there's definitely a lot of space for improvement. Yeah, for sure. I think I, I can echo some of that. I, I think we don't see, like you said, many females in orthopedics in general, but I think the African-American female is probably the most scarce overall. And, you know, there's many factors that go into this, but I think a common problem is that we want and we advocate for people that look like us. So like you said, orthopedics is probably consists of white males. And so without any kind of intervention, naturally, that's what the field will continue to look like. Right. So I think, you know, we just have to be cognizant of that bias and continue to promote change. You know, when you look at organizations such as the Ruth Jackson Society, and dimensions, organizations like that, that are really, you know, leading the charge and trying to promote not just women, but minorities and orthopedics overall. Exactly, 100% agree. Okay, so yeah, we can switch, change the pace up a little bit. Um, there were also some questions that we got from viewers that were more amenable to you, Dr. Okoraha. Um, the first of which was, uh, what is the lifestyle like in orthopedics? Um, you could touch on it as an attending point of view and how do you manage the work-life balance in your current role? Great question and a question that I get often. So uh, I don't really think there's a standard lifestyle for all of orthopedics. I think it's really what you make it. So I went to residency, there's probably 75% of residents were married and had kids. And although I didn't have a family in residency, it was a great family environment. The residents hung out a lot outside of work. And I think you need to understand that residency can be very busy and you really get what you put out of it. And so there's a large time commitment of it. It comes to studying, preparing for cases, research and so forth. But my environment in residency was ideal for me because it allowed me to focus on orthopedics and excel so I could get the fellowship I desired. In terms of attending life, I would say it's, there's a similar time commitment, but the focus changes. So instead of learning about different things, you have to be you know, bigger on the responsibility of making decisions about patient care and performing surgeries. So you're responsible for all your patient outcomes and that, that can really be stressful, thinking about you know, whether you did the right thing, how is the patient gonna do long-term? And so I think as an attending, you're less concerned about finances. You can generally afford things you wanna get, but you also have to manage that responsibly. And you asked a little bit about work-life balance. So I think it's all about creating time for things that you want. So whether it be time, spending time with family, working out, 
going on vacations. If you're really able to plan and manage your time accordingly, then there's time for all that. So you just really have to learn how to make the appropriate sacrifices and that can help a lot with time management. Okay. Now, do you think compared to residency, now you mentioned, you know, obviously each of those has different time commitments. Do you, do you think compared to residency, you are just as busy as an attending as you were as a resident? I think just as busy, if not more busy. Okay. But I think the things that you're busy with change. Okay. And so instead of, you know, running around trying to, you know, get some orders around on patients, you're planning a surgery, you know, you're following up patient care, you're speaking, you're, you know, doing team coverage. So it just shifted to different responsibilities. That makes sense. That makes sense. All right. The next question we had was, what is something you wish you could go back and change during a residency? Something I could go back and change. Uh, so I don't, I don't know if I would change anything about residency. I think, you know, when I started residency, I made a couple goals for myself. So number one, I wanted to learn as much about orthopedic surgery as I could. I wanted to publish a large amount of research and make my CV more competitive. I wanted to be a chief resident when I was a fifth year. So I want to be the chief resident for the residency. And I wanted to get into my number one fellowship choice. And I think I was able to accomplish, you know, all those things. Um, but thinking about it, I guess, you know, one thing I could have done a little bit better is treating cases, especially the sports cases, like they're my own. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's a very different learning experience when you prepare for a case, like you're actually going to perform that case. So you pay attention to some of the smaller details, you know, you ask better questions and it becomes a better learning experience when you take that approach. So that's something I could have probably done a little bit better. Okay. Does that look like you coming up with your own operative plan and then running that by your attending and seeing how they like your plan or what they would do differently? How does one go about trying to uh, prepare for surgery as if they were going to do it themselves? All right. So that looks like if you have a case, you take that case and say, what would I do if I was doing a surgery? Write out your whole surgical plan prepare for it, you know, read up for it, do your surgical technique and actually plan each step of the surgery. Mm -hmm. Then you run that by your attending. You know, this is my plan. This is what I want to do. How do you feel about that? They might give you your tweaks. And then you actually plan like you're going to do that surgery from start to finish. Mm -hmm. And so when you're, when you're putting in that screw, you're, you're, you're using that angle. You're like, oh, I thought I was going to do it like this. How, how are you moving your hand? You know, you start looking at things differently and it becomes a better learning experience that way. I see. That makes sense. All right. Another question they had for you is, how is it working with professional athletes? Um, how does life as an orthopedic surgeon change when you're also a team doctor? Yeah. Uh, so working with professional athletes is a very rewarding experience. I mean, these guys, these girls are at the top of their fields and are extraordinary athletes. You know, particularly for me as a former basketball player, I can identify with their drive, their passion and, and watching basketball is not really a job for me per se. How it changes when being an orthopedic surgeon and team doctor is you have an additional time commitment. So people often don't understand that my primary job is not working with the team. So, so they, they ask me, hey doc, you know, how did, what does your job do? You know, you, you're just working with the team all the time. 
It's not really like that. On the contrary, my normal job is taking care of the everyday athlete like you and me. So that's what I do from nine to five. The work from the team comes before and after that. So it, it's an additional time commitment that varies based on the sport, the number of games. And so you have to be prepared to, to devote that additional time for that commitment. That makes sense. So when you do engage with the team, does that look like, you know, going to the practices, going to all the games? What, is that, what does that look like when you're engaging with the team? Yeah, so for, I can speak specifically on basketball because that's what I do. So basketball is 42 home games. And so depending on your coverage schedule, if you're splitting that with some of your partners, that could look like four games, four home games a week sometimes. Wow. And so if the game's at seven o'clock, I get there at six. The game ends at nine, I stay till 10. So that's four hours of additional on top of your nine to five, and that's four days a week. So it can be a, you know, a large time commitment. Yeah. But as an athlete, it's worth it, I'm guessing. Yeah, I mean, it's worth it for me. You know, basketball is something I love. So like I said, it's not really a job. Mm -hmm. uh, it just changes a little bit because I'm not, you know, chugging back beers and, you know, throwing high five. And I'm, I'm looking like, oh, did he sprain his ankle? Is that, his, you know, is that his shoulder? His shoulder came out. So it's a right. little bit different. Right. That sounds like an awesome experience. Last question that we have for you from one of our viewers was, did you play sports in college? And what were your stats entering medical school? Yeah, I, I played uh, basketball for Xavier during college. So um, what stats are we talking about? Basketball? Because, you know, I'm like a 20-10-5 kind of guy. You know, <laughs> I can get you some buckets down the stretch, lock up your top defender. Talking basketball stats? I think they were talking about medical school stats. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, okay. So college stats. Um, I, I, if I remember correctly, I had probably around a 3.4 GPA. Um, I think with my competitive nature, I had some classmates that I used to compete with to see who I can get the highest scores. And so that kind of kept my grades up. Um, I don't remember my MCAT, to be honest, but I think it was just a little bit above average. I didn't have any research going into medical school, but I had a lot of community work, mostly through programs that we volunteered with during the team. So doing stuff around the city. Okay. And then how did you find yourself able to balance, you know, playing basketball in college, and then also trying to pursue medical school at the same time? Yeah, so people ask me that all the time, and it, it wasn't really difficult for me, per se. I think when I was in college, I wasn't really focused on medical school, so I'd probably say that it was plan B. Mm -hmm. But just because I was competitive, I wanted to get great grades, I just naturally got you know a 3.4 and, and had good grades. But then when I switched into wanting to go to medical school, that lined up my backup plan to be, you know, ready for me. You know, I didn't have to do anything extra. Besides, I probably would have done some research if I was really focused on that. That makes sense. So this is something I've always been curious about, and I kind of have my own theories about it, but some of my most successful classmates in medical school and in residency were also athletes in college, high school, and beyond. And so I kind of hypothesized that some of those same, and I didn't play sports myself, in college, but I hypothesize that some of those same traits and discipline and work ethic and all that that you develop while playing sports at a high level kind of throughout your life translated into your success in medical school. Do you think that's true? I definitely think that's true. I think it's easy, easier when you have that discipline and that focus to sit down and say, hey, 
well, I know I want to get this grade in, in this score. You know, I know, you know, Malik, he had a 95. I had a 90 last time. I want to beat him. So I know I need to put in five hours. I know Malik is only setting two hours. So I'm going to put in these five hours. I'm going to get this better score for him. So <laughs> that was kind of my approach. And it was easy for me to just sit down and, and focus when I need to and drown on all the other things. I think I did a little bit less partying and things like that because I was naturally focused on basketball. So if I wasn't in the gym, I was studying for the most part. Okay. All right. Well, that's it. That's all we had for the viewers' questions. Uh, anything you'd like to say for closing words? No, I think this is a great session. Um, we will post our emails both up on the screen at the end if you have any additional questions. We did get a lot of questions, so we weren't able to answer all of them. But if you send us an email, we'll answer any additional questions. Absolutely. Um, and so I want to thank you, Malik, for being here with us today. And uh, you have a great rest of your weekend. All right. Thank you for having me. Have one as well. And to all the viewers, thank you for your input as well.